Want to make a difference? Live United. United Way is creating real, lasting change where you live by focusing on the building blocks of a better life, education, income, and health. Help create opportunities for everyone in your community. That's what it means to live united. Go to liveunited.org for more information. A public service message brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Good morning, everyone. I'm your host, Janine. You're listening to Get the Funk Out, and this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Happy Monday, everybody, but stay cool. Holy smokes, it's going to be a hot one. It was really hot yesterday, too. I think it's supposed to cool off in the next couple of days, so hang in there. All right, first half of the show, I am so honored and thrilled to have this guest on. Bob Dotson is standing by to join us. He is known for his signature series on the Today Show. He's received more than 100 honors, including eight national Emmys and a record six Edward R. Murrow Awards. He's actually also a very accomplished author. I'm reading one of his books, Finishing Up American Stories, American Story. He has a really interesting approach to the news. While most reporters focus on life's flat tires, he looks for something far more difficult to find. What keeps the other tires rolling? He works the neglected streets of our cities, the small towns, dirt roads, searching for people who are practically invisible, the ones who change our lives, but don't take time to tweet about it and t- talk about it. He's crisscrossed this country four million miles, practically nonstop, searching for the names we don't know, but should. It's my pleasure to welcome to this week's show, Bob Dotson. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Thanks so much for calling in. Sure. I had mentioned I am a Syracuse grad, and I read this great article about you in the Syracuse magazine. I thought, I'm going to see if I can get him on my show, so thank you. Oh, it's always nice to have some place to be. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to back up because um, you have a very interesting background, and we talked about this off-air, how I mean, like, I didn't get into radio, even though I minored it in, at Syracuse, till later on. Tell me about your background, how you became a journalist. Well, I went off to school at the University of Kansas. I'm a Midwestern kid, and I thought I was going to be an attorney like my small-town Kansas uh, grandfather. Okay. It used to drag me out for football games. Now, you understand, I grew up in St. Louis, and Kansas yes. would have been just the uh, the opposing team all the time but i went there and he would drag me down in front of the law building and there was a statue out front and he said you see that statue yeah Yeah. that's uncle jimmy green he was the first dean of the law school and i knew him before he was a statue (laughs) so you ought to go here well that was enough you know in 1964 so Mm -hmm. off i went but i fell in love with the campus radio station Yes. And so I, like most people in life, backed into it. And fortunately, I've, I, you know, I followed a smile rather than, you know, just try to figure out how I was going to make money. Right. And uh, eventually it, it led to the career I had. That's great. You have so many different accomplishments. 25 years in the Today Show. You've, you've traveled over 4 million miles searching for American stories. How did this whole idea of... You know, you don't search for the glitz and, and every regurgitating the same story everybody reports on. You go for the real person. Well, my grandfather, who I, I dearly loved, as you can tell, I mean, mm-hmm. he, he used to tell me that wisdom doesn't always wear a suit. Yes. And I think today, you know, our media mirror reflects the powerful and the people with money. Mm-hmm. And we see that all the time, celebrities and what have you. And I just kept thinking about, well, I wonder what, 
what's sitting in the shadow behind the, the media mirror that reflects everything else. Not that that's not important. Yes. I mean, a lot, we all want to know what's going on in Hollywood and in the movies and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But on the other hand, I think the most underreported segment of our country is us. Yes. Just us. And, and you know, when you start to, I, I, I kind of call it the Delta Airlines syndrome. You know, if you're going home for Thanksgiving and you pay even half attention to that person sitting in the center seat. Yes. Well, they begin to tell you stuff that they wouldn't have told their own children or their own, you know, family, uh, just because you're kind of a sympathetic listener. Well, that's, I decided I would use that as a technique, mainly because all of my in-laws at one time were cops. Oh. And they used to say, you know, when you watch these detective shows on TV, do you notice when they take them into the interrogation room, whoever speaks first loses? Mm-hmm. Because they start to fill the silence, and they tell you stuff that you don't know them well enough to ask. Interesting. Well, that's what I did. So I, I would go to these places, and and you know, people would meet me at the door and say, "I don't know why you're here. I'm, you know, I'm not starring in a in a movie. I haven't written yeah. a book and all that." Sure. And then I just, you know, I, I realized that if I ask my questions in threes, where people always give you the answer they think you asked for, and then they explain their answer. Mm-hmm. And if you just wait a beat, something most of us in media don't do because we're all in live situations. Well, people get uncomfortable with the silence, and they go, well, Donna, that's why I killed my wife. (laughs) You know, and suddenly a whole new avenue opens up to you because, you know, they tell you stuff that you don't know them well enough to ask, and so then you can follow beyond the cliché. Yes. And so much of what what passes for media coverage these days, or even storytelling, is stuff that is said, said the same way. It, you know, sort of like if a tornado comes through town, it always sounds like a freight train. Yes. And and if you put that on television or on radio, then people say, well, that must be the answer I must always give. But there might be something more to it. Yes, absolutely. If you just wait a second. So right. that's that's that was been my approach all these years. Right. And so seemingly ordinary people have come up with uh, something extraordinary that kind of adds something to the uh, to the discussion. You know, it's interesting. It ri- reminds me of doing research doing interviews with people and you look for the themes so you start off and it's kind of rocky and all of a sudden somebody goes somewhere and you start listening and you you go off of that yeah well i think that's the biggest tool you should have if you want to be a storyteller and i'm not talking about writing books or you know maybe just being a storyteller in your family but the thing is is that if you use uh you know your ears and listen deeply you can come up with something um, something you didn't know before that might be not only intriguing to you, but to everybody else on the block. Yes. Now, you shared in your book how you had polio at two years of age, and your mom took you several times a week uh, for physical therapy. That's right. And that was the tail end of a bigger story. And it, uh, when I, I was telling you, I, I graduated from the University of Kansas before I went to Syracuse, mm-hmm. and my dad took me out for coffee and he said, you know, I didn't graduate from college, so you're the first in our family to graduate from college. And I knew that. Yes. And a lot of people in his generation didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, he then he lays on me, because I just let him fill the silence, yes. um, that he only went through the fifth grade. I couldn't believe I said, that when I read that. Yeah. yeah. And the fact is, his father had joined the Army, disappeared, never came back. And apparently, in those days, it was the early part of last century, that if you were a single mom mm-hmm. and you didn't have an extended family, you sent the oldest boy out to work for a farmer. And then the farmer would send the money back to mom to raise the other the other kids while yes. she's probably also working as a, a laundress or something like that, you know. Right. Well, that's what happened to my dad when he was 10. And 
they they finally his uh, his aunt came out one day with with her brother and they mm-hmm. buggy whipped the farmer because he'd been stealing a dollar bill out of the you know once a week when they would send him a letter yes threw him in the back of a of a wagon and took him back to St. Louis and got him a job sweeping up in an auto body factory that when they still made wooden auto bodies and mm-hmm. all the adults were um, first generation immigrants so. Not only was he an 11-year-old boy by himself working, you know, underneath the assembly line, sweeping up uh, the wood shavings, but all the adults didn't even speak English. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. He said it was the lonely... All this is over coffee now, you know. (laughs) He said it was the loneliest year of his life because he was 11, right? So his step-up job was as a janitor in an optical store, and the guy who owned the store said, Bill, I'll never make you work evenings. You might want to consider going to night school. He went 20 three years to night school. Oh, my gosh. He had an honorary master's degree in ophthalmics for his study of the eye. And so the year that I was born, it was his second son, mm-hmm. he decides by this time he's gone from janitor to general manager of this man's two optical stores in St. Louis. So he decides he's going to start his own company. He has $145 in savings in 1946. Incredible. $145. <gasps> so uh, he says to him, uh, you know, okay, uh, w- there's a, a grinding stone for, um, um, you know, for making lenses, lenses yes. for sale back in Kansas City, which is about 300 miles away. My mm-hmm. dad had enough for a railroad ticket, so off he goes. He buys the stone, spends the night on a bench in Ugh. Union Station because he can't afford a motel, comes back and starts dots and optical, and he had a partner who the end of that first year heads off with all the profits. Oh, I heard that. Uh, just heartbreaking. Yeah, and two years later, his son, me, comes down with polio. Oh. So I asked him, I said, well, because, you know, all, all my life, I thought we were kind of middle class. He had a good, because he, he started over with mm-hmm. Dotson Optical, and it was just a two-person operation. Sure. But we were living in a nice house by the time I was a teenager and paid any attention to that. Right. And everyone around us were middle class, you know, college professors and yes. and judges and things like that. And so the point was, I thought, well, God, this is this is incredible. And I said, what did you do? And he says, well, I, I just started over. Mm. Well, he lived long enough to see me climb outside the Statue of Liberty for a Today Show piece with the guy who was the official photographer for the statue. So he saw this kid with polio able to get up to the, uh, the icon of the American dream. And oh. it got me to thinking as an adult when I started writing this book. I said, yes. you, you know, people like my father or like your aunt mm-hmm. or your grandmother who, you know, don't take time to Twitter, and they don't write, and they don't get on television and what have you, but they're the ones who build the highways and make sure that this uh, problem is solved in your life, or maybe even more so. And I thought, these people need to be reported. Yes. Because they really are the essence of why... I mean, stop to think about it. We have 186 different nationalities in the United States. 186. And when they came to the United States from some other place, they fought with 546 now federally recognized native tribes. Mm -hmm. Now, why aren't we firebombing each other every Tuesday morning down at the Starbucks, like back home (laughs) they may be doing? Yes. What is it about the American experience, by and large, despite our well-documented shortcomings, civil wars, civil rights, all these things, what happened in Orlando, all of that, but that's like reporting the flat tire and yes. disregarding the other three. This is not good news. This is, you know, wh- why are the other three still rolling? Sure. And how long do you think the ro- the car will go? Well, you know, if we don't study that, we don't 
It, it, you don't study, you don't learn that by listening to our politicians because they'll say anything they, they can to get elected. They sure will. Yeah, and you know, you look at them and it's like a Rorschach test because mm-hmm. they reflect your worldview, mm-hmm. you think, but you really don't know, but you're going to vote for your worldview. Yes. But meanwhile, in the backyard, there's people like my dad and your grandmother mm-hmm. who have already solved those problems. Yes, yes. Do, do you know we had indoor plumbing 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus Christ? Come on. Four plumbers on the island of Cyprus figured it out. And, of course, they put in an indoor John in the king's castle, right? Mm -hmm. But because they were just plumbers, nobody wrote down what they did. The the Italians figured it out for a little bit. So in Rome, they'd heard about these guys in Cyprus, so they built it a little bit. But when some good old boys came down from Central Asia and sacked Rome, it wasn't until 1748 in Boston, that we figured out how to put a toilet back in a building again. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, I mean, these guys, they weren't running for president. They weren't running for king. They yes. weren't writing books. Yes. But they had solved that particular really interesting situation by not having to go out in the snow to go to the bathroom. And yet it took us another, what, 1,500 years mm-hmm. in order to get the toilets back in houses. Well, you know, it's interesting when you talk about, you talked about Edison, too, with all his inventions, and then these two other gentlemen, I forget their names, I apologize, but how, you know, some of the best ideas are improvements off of what exists without trying to go for the big bucks. You know, those are failures right there. Yeah, well, you know, these guys, they were roommates uh, in college, and they're, they, 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 uh, they live in um, Cleveland, but they... They, they said, listen, the idea is not to come up with something totally new. And you think when you're inventing stuff, you ought to come up with something totally new. Mm-hmm. He said, what the, the idea uh, to do, they had the most number of successful financial uh, patents in the, in the United States history, second only to Edison, but as they point out, Edison was dead. Yes. And so they were still doing it. But they said, <clears throat> they said what, what, it, what the key is to find something that's mindlessly simple, to operate and solves a problem. I mean, isn't that yeah. incredible? I mean, it, it suddenly you've got you've got this thing like they, they were actually trying to figure out how to do it, how to do something for little kids to twirl pops. You know, do, you, you put like a lollipop in their little invention, and you could stick it in your mouth, and it would automatically twirl as you you know you sucked <laughs> on it, right? <laughs> and out cute. of that, they came up with the electric toothbrush. That's right. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's great. But, so, uh, you know, we're, sometimes we do, we don't set the right parameters on how to solve a problem. Yes. And yet you turn around and, and you see, you know, people who are seemingly ordinary folks who are solving these problems every day. Right. I just love how you gravitate to these stories of what you call ordinary people. I mean, I personally love to talk to older people. We have a friend who's 96, soon to be 97, and I love older people. I just love listening to their stories. Yeah. Well, I, I, I got onto that because there was a fellow by the name of Benny Kent in Oklahoma, where my first job was in Oklahoma City, and Benny Kent was a uh, early-day newsreel photographer, mm-hmm. and he works, worked for Pathé News in New York City, and he was kind of an interesting storyteller, so he would shoot stuff that he knew could not be sold to the larger market. You know, he operated from 1904 to 1946 when he passed away, and all of his films were hidden in a little area above the uh, newsroom, you know, between the eaves Yes. And the and the ceiling in the newsroom, and had been wrapped up. Well, as a young guy, I kept looking at all this stuff, and I thought, where did they find it? And well, what they found it was that he had been um, uh, saving all this stuff that he couldn't sell. Like for instance, he would shoot 
films of women doing things besides walking around in bathing suits, which is the only thing that could be sold back in the 1920s. Okay. Or Native Americans who weren't wearing feathers. They might actually have a suit on doing something. Or he found 28 all-black towns in Oklahoma Territory that were originally settled by former slaves. Well, but he, he was enough of a storyteller, he went ahead and shot it anyway. You know, and, and that's why he had, like, Geronimo's last buffalo hunt. Mm. And, and wow. his last buffalo hunt, the man was in his 80s, was done out of an automobile. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but, so here was this great storyteller. He knew he couldn't sell it yes. to the population at large because they were so used to the cliché. If you look at a newsreel, it's going to be women walking around in bathing suits, you know, and, and, and running for you know Miss USA or something. And if it was Native Americans, they were going to be dancing around like they did in the, ni- the 1860s. But That's yet it's incredible. 1933. Yeah, yeah. And so he shot what he really saw and mm-hmm. shot it beautifully, and somebody uh, saved it from our station. Because they, they, what he did originally was he had old nitrate-based film, which was highly explosive. Oh. So he saved it in the fire station in Stillwater, Oklahoma, where Oklahoma State University is. Okay. And when they were tearing it down, the fire chief called the local station and said, we've got a bunch of film up here. We don't know what sure. it is. And they said, well, first of all, it's, uh, it's highly explosive. And he probably put oh. it there because he figured if it blew up, you guys okay. would just search your novels on it, you know. Right. <laughs> so they went out and they saved almost a hundred hours of this stuff, and now it's you know invaluable in terms of the history of of, of the West. Yes, mm, incredible. I love, by the way, your what your grandmother said when you first went on the Today Show and you did one of your American <laughs> stories. Could you share that? <laughs> yes, my grandmother was. I mean, she was like both feet on the ground all the time. And she was so concerned, especially when I went off to Syracuse to get a master's in this thing called radio and television and news and what have you, that I, you know, that I, I'd probably picked the wrong path in life. <laughs> and so when she, when I finally was on national television where she could actually see it, and remember she lived in a little town called Hiawatha, Kansas, 2,000 people. And so I called her after the story was on, and I said, Grandma, did you see this? And she said, yes. <laughs> and then there was silence. And so I, you know, I didn't know. And I said, well, what'd you think? And she said, you ought to learn a trade. (laughs) I said, a trade? Yeah, they're not going to keep paying you for four minutes work a day. You will starve to death. (laughs) (laughs) And so it became our running joke. By the way, she was like 91 at the time. And so I would call her up every couple of weeks when I got a paycheck. And I'd say, hey, Grandma, they paid me again. Fooled them again, did you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Bob, that is so funny. But it's classic, and I'm sure that a lot of people uh, who are listening and, and, and who uh, can, would like to have some kind of a career in storytelling mm-hmm. um, have probably heard the same thing from their families, saying, you know, if you want to do that, at least being, if you want to be tap dancer, or at least being a tap dancing dentist. Yes. Exactly. You know, something that you know, make, your, make your money. Yes. And, uh, and I, there's a prevailing uh, thought these days that, you know, the good old days was about two weeks before you joined anything. You know, uh, television is dead, and you, television news is dead, and radio is dead, and, and newspapers are dead, and, and, and every, you know, and it was much easier when Bob Dotson got started, and then he had five days to do it, and all the best people to work with, etc. Yeah. And I'm here to tell you that in every generation there are huge hurdles, but you get to make the decision: right. what do you want to do with your life? Yes. And almost all of it starts on your own time. I mean, every chance that I got to go off and do something great, I first did a year or so on my own time. 
while I was still, you know, fulfilling the job description of something I really hated. And when I started, when I left Syracuse, I went to a television station where everybody, including the general manager, carried around a video, uh, well, it was film camera in those days, Mm -hmm. and was expected to shoot film. And so it was like a one-person operation, just like we have today, like skinny ties, everything comes back around. Yeah. And people tend to think that if they see something that they'd like to do and they see somebody who is successful at it, they thought, well, that's because he had an open road. Mm-hmm. No. When I got to the Today Show back in 1975, the only thing that ran over a, a, a minute ten were the live interviews on, on, on the, the show itself. So every news story had to be a minute ten or less. And every morning, everybody wow. would call up producers and reporters and whatever yes. and say they needed a minute 35, they needed wow. five minutes, they had the second coming. Yes. And the executive producer would always say, great, but after a minute 10, you're through. You're done, yeah. Now, I came out of Syracuse with a degree in documentary film. So, I, you know, and it was, remember, it was the 60s, so mm-hmm. we all had the answers. And uh, we didn't want to admit the fact that people who were in documentary in those days were the last hired and the first fired because they didn't make money for the, for the station yes. or for the network in those days. So uh, I, I decided, well, I could sit there and rant and rave every morning for more time or... Quietly, I decided I would do an entire year of stories at 59 seconds. <gasps> not a minute one, not five minutes, not the, two minutes and three seconds, but 59 seconds. And so every morning the boss had 11 seconds he could count on coming from me. Wow. In the meantime, I went out on my own time and found a story that I knew would maybe go a couple minutes, and I shot it using my own film stock, and I mm-hmm. borrowed a film camera from a guy who was a... A, you know, a, a union guy that shouldn't have done it, but he thought, well, what the heck. And I would go out and shoot it over and over and over again and then bring it back and ask the editors, and I said, how can I improve on this? Well, right. nobody ever, you know, no young person, they always come in and say, I'm the next, uh, I'm the next uh, you know, star, so I don't need to yeah. do anything. So they were kind of taken aback, so they helped me for six months. And I finally had something I pretty polished that could run for two minutes, literally in my back pocket, and I walked into the boss's office, on the anniversary, and I said, I don't know if you noticed that I've been doing just 59-second stories. And he said, yeah, I have. And I said, well, I, I, I gave him a little elevator pitch. I had a story that I thought might run for two minutes. Yes. And he looked at me, and he said, Bob, you can have five. <gasps> wow. And from the day I started, and I did, that was to about 1977 when I finally got, broke through that. So 77 until I retired last fall, mm-hmm. I had a five-minute segment to do video. Incredible. And I asked him years later, I said, why did you decide to do that? And he says, I knew that if you could do 59 seconds mm-hmm. and had the discipline to do 59 seconds, that if I gave you more time, that you would have chapters, like in a book. Uh-huh. It wouldn't just be because you, were, you fell in love with somebody's interview and you wanted it to go longer or, yes. you know, you had the sunrise, it was gorgeous, and it should have been, you know, three seconds and you made it go ten. Yes. You know, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. So sometimes uh, if you want to find something to do, you've got to do just the opposite. Yes. No, that's great advice. Is this true? I read that in 1967 you applied for a news job at KMOX Radio and they sent you to work behind a <laughs> microphone at the St. Louis Zoo announcing elephant and chimpanzee acts? That's right. In those days, KMOX Radio was owned by CBS. It was one of the owned and operated huge stations. 50,000 watts covered most of the country. So, you know, of course, I came out of Syracuse. and or I, In those days, I was still in, uh, in Kansas, but I came down to them and I said, uh, you know, I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm 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 a freshly minted journalist. Yes. And they said, "Oh, great, because we we really have a uh, <laughs> a job opening. We provide the show announcers at the St. Louis Zoo, which in those days was uh, the largest free zoo in the world." Oh. Yeah. So I thought, 
my grandmother, can you imagine what she'd <laughs> say? You know, I have oh, a yes. college degree, and, and my job is uh, elephants. Because, and actually, the elephants were Alice, Pumi, Trudy, Clara, and Marie. And they started me on those because they don't move very fast, and so they figured I could get up to speed. And my grandmother was not, uh, you know, she was not uh, impressed by the fact that when I had the step-up job um, with chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. And then I got fired from that job, and I'll tell you why. What? Yeah, I got fired. Um, There was was the beginning of the Batman craze in the United States. It was on on TV in those days, Mm -hmm. Adam West and all that. But at any rate... So they went over to Paris, the zoo did, and they bought a little chimpanzee named Little Pierre, because, of course, he's a French chimpanzee. Yes. And he became quite a star. They had a big buildup on him. And when all the other chimpanzees would come out riding bicycles, you know, you've seen these things in circuses and stuff. Sure. Well, Little Pierre wasn't there, and the whole shtick was, you know, they had me in an announce booth up above the kids, and and then they had a a guy wire from the announce booth down to the stage. And mm-hmm. when they couldn't find Little Pierre... We would switch to Batman music, put little Pierre up on a wire, and he would hand over hand down to the to the stage. Oh the problem was that chimpanzees are brilliant, but they're herd animals. And when they got wind of the fact that as they got older, they could retire and become breeders, God knows who told them, but they right. they would learn this when they were like you know seven or eight years old. They would look to how to figure out how not to do this anymore. And there was a chimpanzee named Captain Bozo who was about five, about four three, mm-hmm. but he was strong. He could throw a grown man in the moat with one hand. You know, oh. well, uh, Marlon Perkins, who was the head of the zoo, said, "Listen, when that permanent wire is down there, that means that Captain Bozo is going to get on it one day and try to get out, sure. and he's going to be swinging up over those kids, and I don't want him dropping down on children." Oh, no. So he gave me what looked like a pellet gun, but really it was kind of like Nerf. Nerf balls, you know? Yes. Little tiny things. So it would be like a, a nuisance. It doesn't hurt anybody. But he says, anytime Captain Bozo gets over near the wire, shoot him. Oh. But, you know, I'm like 70 feet away, right? Yes. So it's like, it would be like mosquitoes, you know, <laughs> right. coming around him. And it, so I basically annoyed Captain Bozo all summer to keep him away from the wire. But at the end of the summer, you know, I'm getting cocky and I'm playing rounds of gin rummy with the audio guy. Yes. And just going, you can tell by the way the kids are screaming, whether they're, how about again, born boys and girls, you know. <laughs> and I looked up, I heard this gasp, I look up, and Captain Bozo's on the wire. Oh, no. But he's over the moat. He hasn't gotten over the kids yet. Yes. And my big mistake was I leaned out with the gun. Oh, no. <laughs> and it went, ba-dow, ba-dow, ba-dow. And, of course, he's starting to swat these little flies around him. Yes. And he drops into the moat and then pops back up on stage. Everybody gives a great round of applause. They thought it was all part of the, the act, sh- yeah the act and marlon perkins invited me into his office the next day and he says uh, i'm uh, i'm not going to fire you because i gave you the gun <laughs> <laughs> but i will have to let you go but i will give you a glowing uh, uh, recommendation and that's how i got my first real job okay. in television which is down in oklahoma and fortunately these guys had not seen you know because the st louis post dispatch yes uh, threatened to have a uh, a headline, at least from Marlon's way of thinking, yes. that, you know, zoo employee shoots beloved shoots. chimp. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, awful. You know, off I went to my real job. Right. Mm. And when I, when I graduated from Syracuse, there were five, about 525 television stations in the United States, and I hand-typed 525 resumes mm. w- to get a job. I got only three replies, and two of them were no, and one was finally in Oklahoma. 
Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So when, when people today say, oh, well, listen, the, the best time in, any, in my career and what I would really like to do would be yes. five minutes before I joined or back when Bob was doing it, I think that's a cop-out. Sure. You can create your own life. And the, the question for NBC all along the line was, you know, do I want Bob to do 120 stories? And I've had sometimes during my career where I was taken off of doing stories I loved and put in, put in doing 1,000 stories in a month. Mm-hmm. Or 100 and my, I think my all-time high was 156 actual stories, not like go down to the one location and report every day, Incredible. but actually get on planes every time. So it comes in cycles, and you have to keep re- reinventing yourself to the, yes. each generation that comes along, but they yes. must decide whether or not um, what you're doing will actually be worth some money to them. Sure. And so that's what I did. I, I, lot, most of these things I developed, I developed on my own time, worked at it, polished it up, and then presented it to them with a way to make, make some money out of it. Well, and you've always had such a passion for what you do. I mean, your books make it memorable, writing and packaging visual news with style. I mean, you've got these incredible journeys you've been on, and it's great you're sharing this with people. Well, you know, I think that's the key to everything. If you can find your life passion, mm-hmm. go for it. Yeah. And, and, you know, life keeps tossing, as I'm not telling anybody anything, it keeps tossing all kinds of problems in your way and right. health and whatever. But, you know, during those placid times when, you know, the world kind of calms down a little bit, what I do is I get up every morning and I said, you know, let me make a decision based on what will make me smile today. I like that. Because the payback to that is that if it's making you smile, it's probably because you can do it pretty well mm-hmm. and you're going to get better at it. Yes. And then everything else follows. But if you just say, okay, oh, great, here's a, a job with a title. Yes. And uh, or it's not exactly what makes me smile. And in fact, six weeks later, you're not smiling at all. Then you're not going to do it all that well. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You end up getting canned. You're right. So, I, I, you know, I just think that every time I've because mm-hmm. I've been a student, not as of history, but of people yes. who have learned how to smile, who figured out, how, you know, what can I do that will make me happy? Or on, on, for the most part, and most of us don't make our decisions based on that. We make we make it based on what our parents think, or what our friends think, yes. or what we think would be a good way to you know make a living. And I'm not saying you, you you get the perfect job. You might have a terrible job in order to make the living, but that's not what makes you smile. You go find the thing in your day right. that will make you smile, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're making money at it. But eventually, you might find that it becomes your life's work. Yes. Well, you've become. A life learner. I mean, you you just listen to so many stories, and they're fascinating. And you probably learn so much from all these people. Well, that's that's true. I you know I I just been a lifelong learner from people. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, and I think that's important because so much of what we we consider to be intangible problems and things that make us uh, sad or mad every day, somebody somebody has figured it out. Yeah. And if you're open to that kind of way, well, let me give you, without being political, let me give you an idea. My grandfather, who was a rock rib, small town Republican uh, lawyer, yes, one of his best buddies was Harry Truman. Oh. And when I was eight and my brother was 10, we were going back to my grandparents' home from St. Louis to this little town in Kansas, and we drove by Independence, Missouri. Mr. Truman was retired. He was probably in his late 70s at the time. Um, and he's out mowing the lawn, literally. I mean, here's a former president mowing the lawn. So my grandfather pulls up and gets us out of the car and goes up and says, Hey, Harry, how are you? And Mr. Truman invited us up onto the porch 
And his wife, not some maid, but his wife came out and served us lemonade, and they talked for 15, 20 minutes, and my brother and I were kind of awed to be sitting there with a former president. And finally, my grandfather pops up and says, boys, let's get out of here before this Democrat stuff sticks to the tires. (laughs) And I'm going, whoa! (laughs) And my brother and I are going, can you say that to him? And, of course, Mr. Truman gets up and says, Paul, you old son of a gun! Slapped him on the back, you know, and off they went. Years later, as an adult, I asked my grandfather how he ever got to meet this guy. And he said, well, he was, before he went into national politics, he was a a judge in Kansas City, which was not a legal position, but more like a county commissioner. And he says, I had to have a a case in front of him. And I said, well, obviously you won. And he says, no, actually I lost. But while I was doing the case, I found out that Mr. Truman came back from World War I, and he and a buddy opened up a hat shop in downtown Kansas City, and they went bankrupt. Really? The buddy filed for bankruptcy, but Mr. Truman spent 15 years, paid back every penny, including into the Great Depression, and because of that had to live in his mother-in-law's house. Oh my gosh. And he said years later, he used to laugh, and he'd say, you know, when I had to negotiate with Stalin, the Soviet dictator, he says, he's not so tough, I live with my mother-in-law. <laughs> yeah, that was coming. <laughs> right. So my grandfather said, you know, I, I have a totally different worldview. Yes. But I figured that Harry and I could sit down and we could salt, we could kind of find some place in the middle and move on. And I'm thinking, God, you know, yeah. here's this ordinary guy, my grandfather, who had figured that out, mm-hmm. that the other person was not the Antichrist. Right. You know, look at our political dialogue, what passes for that today, you know. And yet you realize that these guys could probably sit down, find some place in the middle on whatever might be the problem, and move on. Sure. To the next thing. Yes. And that's what built this country. Not people just standing over saying it's my way or the highway. Yes, that's right. You know, and so I, I, I think that it's so important to listen to people who are not wearing suits yes. every day and say, what have you come up with? Yes. How did you get along? For instance, my, my grandkids live in Brooklyn. And if you get on the bus, the number 68 bus mm-hmm. going out to Coney Island, you go by a McDonald's in Brooklyn that's owned by a first-generation Hasidic Jewish couple. And their general manager is a first-generation Palestinian Muslim. And most of their clientele are first-generation Ukrainians and Pakistanis and Indians. Back home, a lot of their brothers and sisters are each other's throats. That's right. And in Brooklyn, they're on each other's soccer teams. That's right. Now, why does that work here? More or less... And let's face it, despite our well-documented shortcomings, it does work, more or less. You know, we're not scared to death when we go to the travel lodge in Wichita, Kansas. We just check in. And yet I'm not sure that people back home in their original countries would be able to say that. You're right. So, you know, there's something that, and I don't think you're going to find it by, you know, listening to our politicians. I think you're going to find it by listening to that person who's sitting next to you on the plane going over Thanksgiving. You're right. You're right. We have to wrap up, unfortunately, but where can people find out more about you and your books? Well, one thing about it is, you know, I didn't want to be a Luddite, so I am <laughs> all over social media. Yes, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and uh, so if you, if you just Google Bob Dotson, and mm-hmm. I spell that with a T, D-O-T-S-O-N, okay. uh, it'll pop up. But, I, you know, all my books are there, and you can see stories that I've done. Okay. Uh, even NBC has a... Um, um, a place now called NBC Learn, oh. 
which has 60 or 70 of the stories of people I've, we've been talking about this morning okay. that you could see you know, on video just as a downlink for free of charge. So that's where I'd start. I'd, I'd it's very simple. Just put in Bob Dotson, or you know, we've got two two books. One of them is the is the textbook, mm-hmm. make it memorable. But for the general reader, it was a New York Times bestseller, and it's simply called The American Story: A Lifetime Search for Ordinary People Doing Extraordinary Things. And uh, by the way, before we wrap, I want to say there was a great story you shared. Um about how everybody was sitting around a table and someone said, before we start eating, what have you done today to make a difference? Ah, yes. That was a, a fellow that I was doing that who came up with a way for people who are doctors mm-hmm. um, after they retired to open up their own kind of, you know, clinic for people. And then he got they convinced the uh, uh, legislature in South Carolina to do a, uh, a law based on the Good Samaritan Act. So, for instance, if you're in the medical profession and you and I have an automobile accident and they come and try to help us, we can't then turn around and sue them. So basically that meant that people who are retired uh, medical workers could have a clinic, and they're not doing, you know, uh, major surgery. They're helping people with the flu and stuff like that, giving them glasses and things. Mm -hmm. But they don't have to go back and get all that insurance. So that's what he did. But meanwhile, he was telling about I said, how did you ever get this idea? And he said, well, my dad... Long before I was a doctor, my dad was sitting at the table, and he'd say, on Sunday dinners, he'd say, all right, now, before we eat, mm-hmm. what did you do this week that uh, uh, helped other people and made you happy? Yes. And if you have that, I want you to talk about it to everybody in the family. If you don't, pass the potatoes. <laughs> and so he said, you know, I got to the point that now all my brothers and sisters did, too, where we had to sit and think about, you know, as they got towards the end of each week, what have we done? Yes. That uh, would help people and make, make life a little better for people around us. And he says, and that has reverberated through my life. He says, here he was down in Hilton Head, South Carolina, which has got more medical professors, professionals retired there than any place in the United States. And he says, I, know, I watched this army of working uh, people who um, were, were really, uh, their, their only uh, place to go would be like the emergency room. So we got that started. And he says, but now here's the fascinating thing. He says, once we got started, because we actually listened to people who live in this community and make, take care of our golf courses and all that, we realized it wasn't a one-way street. There was sure. a family of people who were all, uh, you know, cleanup guys, and they came over and cleaned up for free. Oh, I love it. And somebody else said, well, you know, your little clinic here, you're going to need a new roof. So all these roofers, they didn't own the company, but they came over and re-roofed it because somebody had helped somebody through, you know, the mumps. So So he says, we got to be a dialogue where suddenly people from across classes and age groups and stuff, out of respect from each other, were solving problems. And he says, you know, if you have, uh, you know, something that has to be taken care of in the emergency room, it's five times more expensive than it would be if you just came to a regular doctor. But yes. the working poor don't have regular doctors. That's true. So he says it even helped the community at large because, you know, the taxes for keeping emergency room open for somebody who's just going in for a flu vaccine was crazy. And he says, meanwhile, all of us who are getting bored playing golf three days a week, Right. We got to know Jenny and, you know, Mr. Cisneros and on and on and on, and, and we found out it was a two-way street. Right. That's so true. So That's true. how America was built. That's right. It absolutely was. Uh, and I'll give you one little quick thing. I, I saw a story, a little blurb about this one one town in Montana up in the mountains called Phillipsburg okay. that was surrounded by 26 ghost towns. Yeah. And I got to wondering why 
did this particular town survive when there were 26 ghost towns? Well, I went there, and they had completely redone this little town. It was gorgeous. only had 500 people living in there, but they had like a um, an opera house where they, they did uh, a, a, their own operas that they wrote every year and performed. They had redone their school. They had reopened their hospital so that people don't have to get in an ambulance and go 100 miles up the road to a hospital. So I said, wait a minute, how do you do that with 500 people? And he said, well, and I was talking to the superintendent of schools, and he says, let me give you a little example. I went fishing one day. I needed $40,000 to uh, have cancer surgery. And I came back, and the tent was put up over May- at Main Street, and people handed me a $40,000 check. Are you kidding? Oh. And we don't have rich people in this town. It was the very first silver mining town in uh, in uh, Montana, and it was you know settled by working class folks. And they, they they stayed there through the booms and the busts and the tourists and the not tourists and all that because they loved the town. And they figured that first of all, they'd have to think of each other and not just of themselves. And so they would do things like, for instance, if you had a cattle chute that cost you ten to twenty thousand dollars, and you'd only used it for like. 15 years uh, and it was still good you would sell it for 25000 when it's really worth about five, and the extra money would go to keeping the hospital open oh. on and on and on so they figured out ways to make sure that they uh, could keep the town open That's and they said one. he had yeah. a great quote he said it's the last best place if we don't keep it open so what if we individually have money a lot of money we're going to go someplace else, and we're always going to dream about being back here. Yes. And I thought, oh. that's the pioneer spirit that that's built right. this country. Oh, it really did. I mean, that's why these people are still here. And the kicker to the story was, nine years later, his little daughter had a different kind of cancer, and they came up with $75,000 more. Oh, Bob, that's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. They were going to move the post office outside of town, and so they raised money to keep the post office in town because they realized that's how everybody other than the coffee shop found out about how people were as you went to get up your mail. That's right. You can't move the house, you can't move it out on the highway 50 miles away. Yes. Because it won't be a town anymore. And so in one little small way, they were figuring out a way to keep it viable so that people could live there and enjoy life. And part of it is they have to start thinking of each other. Just it's that's what democracy is all about. Yes. Bob, I want to thank you so much. I loved chatting with you and again Bob Dotson, Google Bob Dotson D O T S O N. Thank you so much Thank for having me. Thank you so me. much. And I'm originally from New York and Connecticut, so perhaps sometime when I'm back on the East Coast, I'd love to meet you face-to-face. Well, listen, I've only got four friends, so number <laughs> five would be great. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> anytime, anytime. Right. Thanks, Bob. Have a great day. Good talking to you. You too. Bye-bye. That was Bob Dotson calling in. Again, I had connected with him because we're both Syracuse grads, and it was so nice of him to um, call into today's show. If you missed any part of my conversation with him, I will put it up on my blog, which is getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. He's got a, several books. We are running a bit late we're supposed to chat with Susan Kane. I'm going to see if I can get her on the line. If not, we'll see about rescheduling her for next week. We'll take a quick break, and then we'll come back, hopefully, with Susan Kane. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.